Hi there, I'm Matt Ashburn, host of the Needlestack podcast. Needlestack is brought to you by Authenticate, creators of the go-to online investigation platform, Silo for Research. If you're looking for a way to conduct research anonymously, protect against cyber threats, all while avoid tipping off your investigative targets, then you want to try Silo for Research. The Silo Research platform completely isolates your online web browsing, allowing you a choice of location and digital fingerprint, and also has built-in workflow and automation tools. The best part is that Silo for Research is software as a service, so it can be used from any computer or location without the need for things like virtual machines, standalone networks, or, or dirty networks. To learn more about Silo for Research, visit Authenticate.com. That's Authentic with the number 8.com. Using intelligence today from the news media um, to social media um, to anything we would also call a publicly available information. It's not just what you see on Twitter or, or Instagram or Facebook. There are, there are literally um, millions of sources of information that are publicly available that don't involve just social media. So you need to have uh, good analysts and good expertise. Welcome to Needlestack, the podcast for professional online researchers. I'm your host, Matt Ashburn, a cybersecurity professional and OSINT aficionado. And I'm Jeff Phillips, tech industry veteran and curious to a fault. Today, we have a special guest who's here to talk about the role of OSINT in law enforcement, um, specifically in regards to civil liberties and privacy laws. Richard Denholm, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Awesome. Well, let, let me give a little background here on Richard uh, before we jump in. Um, Richard is a law enforcement and legal expert with nearly three decades of experience as a U.S. government official. Now, he currently serves as a director with A1C Partners, uh, but he's also an adjunct faculty member at George Mason University's Department of Criminology, Law, and Society. And interestingly enough, um, you've recently published a textbook on intelligence studies, uh, Richard. What's the title of that? Yes, I have. It's called An Intelligence Studies Anthology, uh, Foundational Concepts and Case Studies for the 21st Century, published by Cognella. That's super interesting. People can check that out. Um, yeah. Richard, we've told people that this this episode is going to be about OSINT uh, within a law enforcement context. And, and a lot of your background stems from your time with um, with the FBI. Can you can you tell us a little bit about uh, your different experiences there? Absolutely. Yeah, I started uh, with the FBI back in 1995. Uh, I was hired uh, as a special agent then and I uh, began my career in Washington field office uh, working uh, high level public corruption investigations. Uh, and eventually uh, moved out to Ohio, uh, went to Youngstown, where I landed in all types of FBI investigations. But a lot of corruption work, and we eventually uh, investigated the uh, U.S. congressman from that uh, congressional district, and we uh, got him convicted. He went to prison, and he was expelled from Congress. He actually was only the second U.S. congressman since the Civil War to be expelled. Uh, I continued my career at the FBI working uh mostly corruption between uh, Ohio and D.C. Uh, and then uh, I eventually, the last five years of my career at the FBI, I was the deputy director of the OSINT Fusion Center, uh, which is one of the largest federal law enforcement uh, intelligence sharing platforms in the government. And we did a lot of open source uh, intelligence work at that center. 
and and then um, I know currently uh, you serve as a director at A1C Partners. Um, what's your focus in, in that role? Well, A1C Partners provides open source analysts to the government. Uh, we work with different agencies to help them uh, close the gaps from their uh, government information that they have. Our analysts are experts in conducting open source research, writing reports, disseminating those reports, and working with government officials. Uh, my role since I retired from the FBI uh, about four years ago has been working as a director with A1C Partners. Uh, I also am an attorney, uh, and I blend that experience between the, the law and my law enforcement special agent background, and I provide um, uh, legal privacy and policy advice to the analysts and to the government officials that we work with, because there are a lot of different hurdles uh, as we work in this environment. You know, one of the things that's very important, obviously, is that law enforcement not only enforces the law, but they're also compliant uh, with the laws that are out there in the Constitution. So could you cover some of the top things that folks may not know uh, with regards to OSINT and how privacy and civil liberties can be affected by that? Absolutely. I mean, one of the main things to keep in mind, first of all, is that information that people freely and fully put out in the public domain is accessible uh, by anyone. If you want your friends, neighbors, coworkers to know information about you or about things you've done and you put it out there publicly and you do not protect the privacy of that information, that's fair game for everybody, including the government, including law enforcement. Uh, so there's an obligation under the law that if you want to keep something private, you have to work to make it private. So obviously, if you're fully, freely putting information out there, you're not protecting that privacy, uh, and therefore anybody could take a look at it, use it as required. Um, but even with that, government officials, um, all that I know, all that I've worked with, are careful with that information and careful not to abuse uh, that as well. <clears throat> oh, interesting. And you mentioned that uh, a lot of your experiences with the federal government. Are there any differences in OSINT and the collection of OSINT between the federal space and the state and local law enforcement agencies? For the, for the most part in general, no, because the Fourth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution applies equally between uh, federal, state, and local government. So you have to be careful not to uh, violate uh, individuals' rights under the Fourth Amendment. Also, they have rights under the First Amendment, obviously, uh, as their free speech rights as well, right? So government at any level cannot interfere with that. However, it's very important to know that there are different laws uh, at each level and in each jurisdiction that could impact uh, research uh, for open source, um, and it applies to developing any type of intelligence in law enforcement and the government. You need to understand the laws in the jurisdictions that you're working in. So you may work in a, a state uh, or a city that has particularly restrictive uh, limits on what law enforcement can do with open source intelligence or any other intelligence. Um, or you may work in one that, that gives law enforcement much more free reign to collect it. So the key to know is understand the law in your jurisdiction. And usually you can work, in my case, when I was with the FBI, we would work with the U.S. Attorney's Office. Um, we worked with the assistant U.S. attorneys every day. They knew the law. They could advise us. Another mechanism in the FBI is we had what were called chief division councils. Um, 
usually special agents slash lawyers as well, who work to advise agents on the law. Um, and also, I would note that even as a federal agent, you have to pay attention to the law in your state uh, that you're working in. Um, obviously, the, the U.S. court system has uh, different circuits, uh, which are the appellate level, and those circuits could have different rulings on how intelligence is collected and used, especially as to, it goes to open source intelligence. You know, and I remember during the pre-show chat that we were doing, we were talking a lot about some of the challenges and uh, one of those being resources and constraints, especially at the state local level. Can you talk a bit about how resource constraints can affect uh, open source collection within law enforcement and some of the considerations there? Well, absolutely. One of the a key thing I've noticed recently, too, is it seems that there are many, many people who say that they're experts in uh, open source intelligence and the collection of it. Um, I, I think there's a lot of people who, who dabble in it and sort of understand it. Um, you know, our practitioners at A1C Partners um, work a lot in it and have much more expertise because there are particular tools that are more useful than others that can be used um, in this open source uh, intelligence realm. Um, there's some freeware out there that some people are really good at using at. Uh, but what I've seen is the technical tools created and run by all kinds of different companies nowadays are often much, uh, much better at helping to collect information. And they're often very expensive. So depending on the jurisdiction you're in, that cost always plays a factor. Um, and you have to weigh what tools you can purchase, what, what your budget is, et cetera. That's, that's super interesting, Richard. Um, you know, we'd be remiss if, if I, if I, if we didn't bring up, uh, you know, there's a lot going on right now, um, unfortunately with uh, Russia and Ukraine. Um, can you give us some of your thoughts on world events and, and how that's impacting OSINT practices? Absolutely. Well, and when I teach my course at George Mason as well, I tell my intelligence students that the problem nowadays is not too little information, it's too much information. So especially when you look in the open source environment, um, there is just so much information out there. Um, the former director of the FBI once called it uh, looking for needles and stacks of needles. And I think that's a very good uh, description of what you have to do, because everything often looks alike. Then the big problem, too, nowadays, especially if you look at the Russia and Ukraine situation, uh, the Russians are masters at disinformation, um, and they put a lot of fake, they, they literally put fake news out there. They use it as a weapon, and they have for decades, and they're very, very good at it. So uh, especially uh, if you're an open source intelligence analyst, you have to be very discerning of what you're looking at. We even saw recently, in recent days, widely reported in the media, uh, some disinformation uh, from Ukraine. I think I saw one situation with a ghost jet that was flying around. I saw that that wasn't true. It was made up. I saw another uh, snip on the news about <clears throat> somebody jumping out, like a paratrooper jumping out of a plane and floating down and like he was invading or repelling, whatever he was doing. But it turned out later that that clip was actually seven years old. So analysts have to know their technical tools, know the technology they're working with, and really dig down into the metadata of these things to verify. And if you notice, even in recent days, many of the major news networks that, that we're watching have really started uh, to put uh, notes into all their reports that we have verified this, this video. You know, we know from metadata that it's this. So 
that's even developed even more in the last few weeks, and it's really fascinating to watch right now. It is, and you commented, uh, you quoted the the former FBI director saying that open source is like finding a needle in a stack of needles, and that's really where even the name of our podcast comes from, Needle Stack, right? Uh, that, that is that is a big challenge, and as you touched on, you know, verifying the information and the analysis is a big part of this. When you look at open source as an intelligence discipline. Uh, it's not just going out and, and grabbing a screenshot from Twitter or looking at a map or, or downloading a video. It's that information and data plus the subsequent analysis that sets it apart from just uh, sort of a casual collection of, of information. Absolutely. And, and that brings to mind for me, as you say that, uh, as also my part of my course at George Mason, I teach a lot about the ghost army during World War II. And, you know, every country, every military uses what it's good at. Well, what was the United States good at uh, from the 20s to the late, you know, 20s to now, I would say. But we had Hollywood. We had actors. We knew how to build stage sets. And as part of a strategy in World War II, they created a fake army that looked like tanks and and guns. And they they were just air balloons. But at that time, the, the Germans and the Japanese were not very good at discerning. Uh, what was fake, what was real. So it looked to them from their very rudimentary ability that there were different armies in different places. They really weren't there. So those techniques are still used today. I mean, I think that's a very basic early way of understanding what we're talking about. And just imagine now how far we've come 70 years late, over 70 years later, and how sophisticated it is. And that's why we're seeing, uh, you know, all these different platforms and hackers and everything else getting really, really good at creating uh, disinformation and fake reports and fake media. Uh, because now the, it seems like a lot of the battlefield um, is not only being waged in cyberspace as far as hacking, but it's it's information warfare uh, at a whole new level. You know, you asked what we were good at in the 20s and 30s, and actually the first thought that came to mind was, uh, bootlegging during prohibition. So that probably wasn't the answer you were looking for. Uh, so I'm glad that you clarified that with, with the Hollywood, ref- with the Hollywood reference. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hey, hey, Richard, um, uh, an equal amount of our listeners are, um, also in the, uh, or in the private sector. Um, can you talk a little bit about OSINT as it applies, you know, to, to, to commercial enterprises, uh, as well as we've been talking about on the government side? Absolutely. So, uh, Clearly, on the private side, there are um, privacy laws that apply, and anybody in corporate uh, business analysis uh, needs to be aware of uh, the ramifications uh, still of the Constitution and laws in their jurisdiction. Um, But uh, business intelligence uh, can and does really benefit in the open source environment, right? You can imagine, again, a very simplified way to put this and look at it. Um, But to really make the point is that if I am the uh, CEO of Coca-Cola, maybe, uh, and one of my uh, folks comes to me and says, hey, it'd be a really good idea to build a new plant in eastern Ukraine. What do you think about that? Right. And if you're not paying attention, you don't watch the news, um, you know, you might think, hey, that's a great idea. We should do that. But you could see a very basic way of saying that is how using intelligence today from the news media um, to social media um, to anything we would also call a publicly available information. It's not just what you see on Twitter or, or Instagram or Facebook. There are, there are literally um, millions of sources of information that are publicly available that don't involve just social media. So 
you need to have uh, good analysts and good expertise reviewing all of that. So if I'm the CEO of a company and I want to put a plant somewhere, probably one of the first things I'm going to do, obviously I'm going to analyze the economic benefits of it, but what's key to those economic benefits is understanding the geopolitical environment where I might be landing, um, what are the labor issues, et cetera. And open source intelligence can provide a lot of very valuable information uh, to help you make those decisions and inform your decisions. So business analysts are really critical nowadays does, as well. Sorry, it was a follow-up because um, does does PAI um, or publicly available information, do those rules, are they going to vary in the private sector versus the government sector? Or is that all the same? They could. And again, you should understand. And when we talk about businesses, we're always talking about corporate law. So you know, corporate law is going to be very, very important, and, and contracts are going to be very, very important in whatever you're doing. Um, and then you need to be, though, thinking about, am I violating somebody's rights? Uh, California nowadays uh, instituted very strict laws to protect its citizens' uh, privacy, and there's a lot of implications for the Facebooks and the Twitters of the world and that sort of thing, uh, that they have to be very careful how they collect data from people to, again, what do they want to do? They want to advertise. Um, but they need to be aware of, in their jurisdiction, are there very strict requirements on that? Um, and what can they collect? How can they use it? And really, most importantly, how do they have to protect the information of their customers? Um, so not only legally, but then you'd have to think about it, too, from a corporate decision-making standpoint. You know, if you get found out as repeatedly violating people's uh, privacy or civil rights, whether it was true or whether it was just perceived, you could lose a lot of customers that way, right? So that would be a very bad thing and very dumb for your bottom line. Um, so those items are key in the corporate uh, and business world. But again, um, that's why they have their own general counsel's offices who provide advice um, to them on these issues. So, Well, Richard, really appreciate the conversation today. Uh, real quick, any final thoughts uh, for 30 seconds here? Uh, what would you like to leave our, our listeners with? Uh, I'd like them to understand uh, how much open source intelligence is out there um, and that finding the right analysts to help them either in business or law enforcement is critical. And again, understanding uh, the laws in your jurisdiction, how they apply to you, um, but not to be not to feel too constrained in this environment. Don't be afraid of it. Uh, there are ways to navigate it. And there's a lot of folks out there like us at A1C Partners who can help. Yeah, that's all great advice uh, and really appreciate the time today. And uh, thanks to those that are out there in the audience for tuning into the show today. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe as always to our show wherever you get your podcast. You can also watch episodes on our YouTube channel uh, and also view transcripts and other information about our podcast on our website. That's authenticate with authentic with the number eight.com slash needle stack. Now, next week, we'll be back with even more on our tour of OSINT and look at how it applies to trust and safety teams in the technology sector. We'll see you then. Hi there, I'm Matt Ashburn, host of the Needlestack podcast. Needlestack is brought to you by Authenticate, creators of the go-to online investigation platform Silo for Research. 
If you're looking for a way to conduct research anonymously, protect against cyber threats, all while avoid tipping off your investigative targets, then you want to try Silo for research. The Silo research platform completely isolates your online web browsing, allowing you a choice of location and digital fingerprint, and also has built-in workflow and automation tools. The best part is that Silo for Research is software as a service, so it can be used from any computer or location without the need for things like virtual machines, standalone networks, or, or dirty networks. To learn more about Silo for Research, visit Authenticate.com. That's Authentic with the number 8, .com.